0: Hi, I'm Ian DeLisi. Welcome to episode 31 of Essential Conversations. You're about to hear my conversation with Al Sutton, record producer, audio engineer, and owner of Rust Belt Studios, where Kid Rock recorded his early work and Greta Van Fleet recorded their breakthrough EP. He's worked with hundreds of bands in between and launched the Acme Audio Manufacturing Company along the way, recreating gear that replicates the Motown sound. During the pandemic, we sat down at Rust Belt for a chat. Um, Do you think that the fact that you were a musician has helped you greatly in your work, or would it not have really mattered to
1: you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think even if you're just a mix engineer, being musical helps, because it's all, you know, um, even just doing a mix is a performance in itself, it can be, you know, you're adding an element to the whole sound of the overall thing, dynamics, and, you know, frequency response, all the different things, you know, the effect of what each section does by what you do to it, so... I, I think that, you know, m- pretty much everybody that does this and does it well is some former musician. Usually what producers are, or engineers are just failed musicians. That's what I call <laughs> myself. <laughs> I'm just a failed musician who s- didn't want to go get a regular job. So I opened up a studio, you know, and that was the end of it, you know. But um, there's so many musicians that are just so great. And it's mm-hmm. like, I look at what they do and I'm just like, God, that guy is amazing or that girl is amazing, you know, and um, it just blows my mind, and I just don't even, you know, I don't aspire to be like them because I think I got my part to play at what I do and let them do their job, you know? That being
0: said, um, you've had so many musicians, uh, people we absolutely know, and then people we will never hear of that have come through your doors, Um
1: the best ones are the ones you never hear of, usually. I, I know. I was going <laughs> to
0: say, there's got to be these, it's got to be almost heartbreaking when you, you know that you've heard maybe some of the best music you've ever heard,
1: and the rest of us aren't going to hear it for any number of reasons. That happens a lot. I think 90% of it, 98% of it, maybe 99.9% of it, nobody hears. You know, most people just hear a song done, right? They just mm-hmm. hear it
0: is, there's the song. There is... Obviously, the creation of the song, but somebody comes into your studio, and this is really for people that don't know the process. There is the person that records it and sets the mic Mm -hmm. and makes sure to gather the right sound.
1: That's usually called the engineer. The engineer.
0: Okay. And then we have the producer who is sometimes the same person Mm -hmm. or the person looking over that person's shoulder saying- It's mostly the
1: same person in this day and age. Is it?
0: Okay. Mm -hmm. We'll talk about that in a second. And then- There is the mix, which can go many different directions and done many different ways.
1: Absolutely.
0: That is where I would think it gets to be. You have to really be able to sacrifice certain things and say that stuff isn't going to work and this is kind of the direction, or maybe not. But let's talk about the process of the band comes in, you're setting the mics. What are you thinking about when you're doing that part of it?
1: Uh okay there's a lot of things um there's always like an anticipation with the artist about a direction they want to go sonically like the way they want to sound and and by the time they get to the session I've already had that conversation with them you know and probably went to see them practice and listen to their music and kind of just had those discussions with them and kind of figure out what they're going for so that being said you know it's just a matter of like okay we're going to do for example very open drum sounds with a lot of room mics and, you know, very ambient, bigger, you know, I'll use the Led Zeppelin, John Bonham drum sounds. Are we going to do 70s P-funk tight as can be in the smallest little confined space for drums? It always Mm -hmm. starts with the drums. And then then the rest just sort of happens as you're setting up. Like, you know, we have tons of guitar amps. People bring their equipment. They try things out and, instrument. you know, musicians just sort of, I like this, I like this, I'm using this. And they figure out what they want to do we mic it all up and then it just becomes a situation and about the production and it's like make sure it all is performed properly but you're still constantly making sure sonically everything sort of fits you know and Mm -hmm. and i've kind of learned over the years many years ago that the sound is super important but the sound even the worst sound could sound better if it's played properly if that makes any Mm -hmm. sense like the greatest tone could be the greatest tone, but if it's just not in the right place in the track performance wise, it's irrelevant then, you know? And something that's not as good, if it just feels good, it doesn't matter, you know? And that's just all that it's about. And and I learned that early on when um in the days when Punch Andrews, who's a, a mentor of mine, took over managing Kid Rock back in like I don't know, late nineties, early two thousands, and he came in and he's he's a brilliant man not a musician at all but an excellent producer and he just knows how to make things feel good and he's just like i don't care what it sounds like if it doesn't feel good you don't have a record here son you know and he's just you're spending too much time trying to get a snare drum one of his famous quotes on a bob Seeger session is some engineer spending days or hour, i don't know probably not days because that would never fly in that camp but Spending a lot of time getting a snare drum tone, and he just goes, Hey, we're not selling snare drums here, you know? Quit wasting time on it. That's like the biggest joke. So, but that just that whole takeaway from that, like 20 years ago, was like, He's right, you know? It's like you can't overthink that stuff. You got to get the band to do what they got to do and, you know, sort of adjust it as you go. Be faster with your tones. Don't waste all this time wearing the band out and messing around.
0: When it gets to the actual recording part, Unlike a live performance. You mean like actually
1: taking the take part?
0: The take part. Like okay. So here we are, you know, if you play live and you're on a tour, you get to try countless times to play a song in many different ways. But
1: you don't get a redo if you screw it up. You <laughs> just got to play through it. You just
0: play through it. But when you're recording for an album, and it's going to be that way for forever, that's so different. To try to get the best art of these artists get their best performance. But you have time. Is it true that sometimes the best performances come at the beginning of the session?
1: Absolutely. There's always the um performance of the unknown, I guess you could say what it would be, where the artist doesn't even know what they're doing, but they're not really thinking about it because they're just laying it down. Because maybe they don't think they're actually taking a take and they're just playing because it's like it doesn't matter And it's just this more relaxed thing. And and we have this term, like, when somebody's doing a take, you just, you feel it being just wrong. And you just tell them, you go, I can hear you thinking, you know, because of the way they're performing. You know, I can hear you thinking about it, you know. And you're not losing that, that conscious forward front thing in your brain that's worrying you and making you overthink about what you're doing and letting just... You know the muscle memory take control and let you just perform the song, or your mind's not in the space of the actual lyric content. Say if you're the singer, you know, so you can hear them thinking. But those first takes and everything, there, oh, there's always something special in them, even if there's something wrong in them and you can't use it. There's still that just that thing that's just not thinking and going at it, you know. And that was the Smokey Robinson thing, three takes. And he said, after three takes, rigor mortis sets in. And he would always, and he had, you know, for him, three takes. I probably <laughs> didn't even need it, you know. <laughs> With those right. guys playing, it was like if they had to do three takes, that was probably, you know, something was wrong. But um, I do firmly believe in that, you know, that it matters.
0: Is it your preference to have everybody in there together performing live, and and how often can it you depends. actually do that? Is it that depends. the
1: best? I like it that way cause I prefer I'm old too. So I prefer that kind of sound, you know? Yeah. Um, there's really like no, in my world, there's no right or wrong way to do it. It's just whatever works for the project. You know, if it's a singer songwriter with a bunch of session guys, mm-hmm. you know, they, they're working out the song for a few minutes trying to get it right. And those tend to be a little more laborious, you know, you have to mess with those a little bit. Um, Cause they're not a band, but if it's a band, I'll put them all in there and I'll make them play and I'll try to work out the the repairs on the songs, the parts before they go in there. Cause it, I just find that that initial, especially a well-performed band, the initial glue between like the the musicians is just, it's just great. It all moves together and that feels right. And I've gotten into singing in the last couple of years where I just stopped using click tracks for the most part because I'm just sick of everything being so antiseptic and straight time, you know, and Mm -hmm. it might be a little more work in the back end to fix things because you just can't pro-tool it all together, but (laughs) nobody could with tape.
0: Well, let's talk about now you have everyone recorded and it comes to the mix, Mm -hmm. which you can do countless things with and talk about that process a little bit, what you're thinking, how you know when you're done. (laughs) Or are you never done, I guess? Do you know when you're done?
1: (laughs) The problem is is there's a lot of people that don't know when they're done. Not just me, but it's everybody else in the project too. So Um, like the mixing thing – it's usually the fun part. I mean, it's all fun, you know. All of it's fun, except for vocals. Sometimes those could be a pain in the ass. <laughs> That's a whole other interview. Yeah, but <laughs> like in in the old day, it would just be the guy who recorded the record would just mix it after they were done recording. They would just balance it. They'd mix a whole record in like two days. They didn't have a million tracks. They had sixteen or maybe twenty four, and then you know. 48 at one point then more and more now pro tools 256 i think i can do i think a lot of time when you get into some really heavily track counted tracks a lot of the mixing process is just trying to decipher what you're actually listening to you know and um i think pro tools is a bad thing for people that can't make decisions because you don't have to make any then you just keep going and going and i i came up in the day of tape you know 16 and 24 so it was like that's it and if somebody brought in a 24-track session right now, I would laugh. I'd be like, this will take me 15 minutes to mix because I don't have to spend four hours trying to figure out what these 62 tracks of guitars that are all playing the same thing are supposed to be doing, you know? And, um, and I think that's part of it. But, you know, we don't... I don't think we live in that world anymore where it's, you know, we have whole industries of people that just mix records now. And I think the good thing about those guys is that they make those definitive decisions. You hire them to do what they do and... They're going to put it where they want it, and that's kind of it. And then, you know, maybe the band will complain about it later. But I like mixing, so I like to mix. But I'll take a break before I do the mix and try to step back for a few weeks before I do it just to kind of come back fresh, you know.
0: Okay, let's talk about some of the people that you've
1: worked with. I don't know anybody like that.
0: (laughs) Um. You ended up working with Kid Rock. I have early on.
1: <clears throat> yeah, everybody knows that story. He was like the janitor at White Room and work hanging out in the B Room. He wrote that whole record like after hours. He would do sessions and hang out, and he would sit there night after night and just check out this track, Cowboy. I'm like, nobody's gonna listen to a song about a cowboy. <laughs> That's how dumb I was! <laughs> I was clearly in a different mindset though. You know, at that point in my life, that was like '97. That's when I was still in my own band, and I was thought I knew more than everybody else about music, about what's <laughs> popular. And I'm, just, I was like a dude who was just totally into like British, you know, right. shoegaze, space pop, and I'm
0: like, <laughs> yeah, it's a you different know. thing. And for Kate sure.
1: came in with the Alanis Morissette record when it came out. I was like, listen to this record; it's great. And I'm like, eh, it's a little poppy, but I go back and listen to that record now. I'm like, that's a great record. <laughs> that's an honest performance out of her, you know, because mm-hmm. she's just. Like you said, late at night doing it, one pass. She just lets it all out and it becomes something that's great because it's just straight from the heart. It's not labored upon and it's not contrived and it's not trying to be this or trying to fit that gap. You know, like we got to get into this market box for our band. I I was like ready to quit music, like making records when I met those Greta Van Fleet kids back in like. What year is this? 2020? Yeah. It's almost over. Um,
0: Didn't you? Was it 2017 you did the EP?
1: Yeah. And I met them in probably like late 16, you know, and I was kind of so sick of like recording, you know, nothing against the bands that I was working with at the time, but everybody just wanted to sound like somebody else and nobody wanted to do their own thing or take any risks. It was all like beat detective and tight Pro Tools and heavy this and auto tune that you know and I'm just like this isn't making music anymore I'm just a computer programmer at this point I'm sick of it I didn't like spend all these years trying to get these tones just so I can replace them all with samples and make everything feel like a drum machine you know if I want to do that just get a drum machine let's do it that way but talk talk about the Greta Van Fleet story so you I mean I literally was done with the the studio was like just doing what it was doing I had all these other kids working here. They still work here and they're doing work. And I just like, I didn't want to record anything anymore. And those kids, their dad, I think, called me up and we're a rock band and we want to record. We heard you know how to do rock and roll, and, you know, and all this stuff. I'm like, yeah, I used to, but nobody does rock and roll anymore <laughs> the way I like to do it. And they came in and they're like, two of the kids were like 16 or no, the drummer and the bass player were 15 years old. And one of the other two guys, they were like maybe 17, you know, they were, it was about two years, two and a half years and they just start playing, and I'm just like, these kids can play, and they're like little babies, you know? And um, and I asked them, I go, so what do you guys want to do? Because they had that Zeppelin sound, you know? It's the singer that really sounds like Robert Plant. I like, go, you guys want to, like, play the game, you know, mold it into a direction and do this and do that? And they're like, hell no, we don't care. We're not here to, like, we're playing this for ourselves. And we don't, we're, this is what we want to do. We're not changing anything, you know? I mean, other than, like, work on performance or maybe work on arrangement issues or things like that, you know, like, feel things. But they didn't care. They're like, we're not here to try to get a record dealer to play some, you know, follow me sort of thing, you know, or follow somebody else thing. And I'm like, I love these kids because, you know what, I spent my whole life trying to learn how to record classically, you know, in the sense of, like the 60s and 70s recording engineers to get those great sounding records of like the british era and like all the american early rock and roll stuff and not just that but all the america you know the jazz stuff of that time and so it's like that whole like sound <clears throat> was what i'd like basically tried to do my whole life and then nobody wants to sound like that and these kids are like absolutely let's do it you know and um i mean i do the drum micing techniques called the glenn johns you know that he discovered figured out when he was making led zeppelin one you know so that whole method everybody you know a lot of people use it and i just always stuck to it you know and um and i'm just like these guys are great we do that ep and i'm like nobody's ever gonna like like this record but i love this record because i just like rock and roll and just loud and i could just engineer it the way i want to engineer it and they don't want to do this and you know, no click tracks and none of this and that.
0: How how did they do in the studio? Had they been in studios before, or was this the first time they, that they were had that they experience? They did a demo at
1: another studio locally,
0: but they hadn't spent a lot of time recording. They had no
1: experience, and so
0: you had to. I'm sure you were your experienced. You taught them what it, how to do a this. Bit. Yeah,
1: a bit. Yeah, they're fast learners though. Like we did a couple sessions. Like the drummer, you know, he was just started playing drums. He was a guitar player and he just started playing drums like a year before. And it was like, we first started playing and everybody's a little busy. You know, that's always what bands do. They come in and they're just so busy because you don't really hear those nuances until you play it back and you listen in the control room and you're like, ooh, I see that I'm like really locking with the bass player and I got more notes on the foot here. The guitar player is doing a little too much. And I would point those things out and they would go back and do them right. And then like a few months later, they come back and I swear to God, it was like the improvement from that was astronomical. Like, I was just like, wait a second. I didn't have to tell that kid anything about drum patterns or busyness. And the bass player had, like, settled down and was really finding his spot in the track. And I'm just like, these kids are just way too good, you know. And we finished up that EP, and I didn't think it was going to go anywhere. I played it for a few people, and they're like, I don't know. Maybe you should change it and send it to my lawyer, and the rest is history. You know, we went to Nashville, and they got, like, signed within a minute. Were
0: you shocked by all that?
1: Kind of, but if you watched them play though, it wasn't hard to believe, you know, like, like I always joke that those kids could play a set in like a McDonald's bathroom for one person and they would play like they're at the biggest arena ever, like their energy. And when they did their like showcase down in um, Nashville at SIR, we were showcasing for a management company and my lawyer was there and it's, you know, it's one of those little rooms, well, decent sized room with a PA and, you know, like six guys in suits sitting there with their arms crossed and the vibe is horrible like i would be so uncomfortable up there and they just you know like the first song the dude is just on his knees just screaming and yelling and doing his thing and my lawyer just turns around after the first song and he just mouths what the f-? you know <laughs> like he just mouths it to me over all the noise and i like like his arms up in the air. management company passes and my lawyer is like that those guys are idiots he's like introduced me to the parents, I got this done. And he literally introduced him to the parents, he started representing them as their lawyer, and like with it was like a Saturday by Monday we had a deal on the table with, you know, Jason Flom. And I was just like, well that was unexpected and very quick and <laughs> You know, like, I'm glad it happened, you know, but that taught me a lot about honesty, though. That whole thing about, like, just do what's, like, make the artist do what's honest. Don't try to fake it. Don't do something that you're not. Just be yourself as a musician. I think it sticks out more in people's subconscious mind, you know. They resonate with it more, you know, if it's somebody pouring their heart out. And they're a polarizing band, Greta Van Fleet, you know. A lot of of people I know, they can't stand them. They think they're so, like, derivative and... Mm -hmm. But they're, they're truly, honestly, just playing what they play. And they grew up, you know, with a blues dad who played in blues bands. And they, they came through the route of blues and progressed into this thing, you know. It's like they're not just a bunch of kids who listen to Led Zeppelin and want to be Led Zeppelin, you know. They go so much deeper and their vocabulary is really musically deep, you know. I mean, it kind of blows my mind how young they are and some of the blues stuff that they bring up. And I'm like, I have to. Go check that one real quick. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, mm, never heard that one before, you know? <laughs> Very good. So, you know, and, and they're just playing what they want to play. You know, they're not playing it because, oh, man, they sat around in their room one day and go, what can we do to get ahead? Oh, I got it. We'll just sound like Led Zeppelin, and we'll just rip that off. That never worked. Kingdom Come did that back in the 80s. Remember that? And that yep. didn't work so well. They poured a lot of money into that. Well, to your point of an
0: honest sound, um, this is a good time to start talking about Maybe Motown. Maybe we should say
1: honest performance.
0: Honest performance. And <clears throat> in a true sound, this is a good time to talk about Motown. The best. Yeah.
1: They're the reason I'm sitting here in this room right now, you know? What was, a lot of us probably are. Oh, yeah. You know?
0: What was it for you about listening to those records that came that were on that label?
1: Honestly, I can't quantify the Motown thing. It's Growing up in the 70s, the early 70s, um, and driving around with your mom in the car and CKLW, it's all you heard. So, like, you get this, it just impregnates your brain and it just becomes part of your soul, I think. I don't know what it is. I never get tired of listening to it. I and mean, I don't listen to it every day, but I can throw up, you know, any Motown record and just listen to it and just always be enamored by it, you know? And I don't know if that's, like, cult fanaticism of an art <laughs> of a music firm because it's my hometown, you know, right. or or not. You know, I mean I, I and that's the thing, you know, like their stuff was great and sonically it sounded great, but it, it wasn't the best sounding stuff that was ever recorded, but it was certainly probably the best feeling stuff of the of the time. You know, like those guys Dennis Coffey, you know, we were talking about him earlier, you know, I've worked with him before and he's an amazing player. And then you, you think about like you just stack the deck with everybody else at that level. It's just it's mind blowing to think about the talent in one room, and like to be the guy that actually got to record that.
0: Do you remember walking into Studio A at Hitsville for the first time and and being blown away by how small that space was?
1: I do, and you know, um, you know, as an as an engineer producer guy, this romantic fascination with old studios. They were because you just feel that energy coming out of the walls and all those hits. You know, it's like when you go to United Sound, it's the same thing. You know, and Ocean Way over, and you know california or east west which you know those you know all those great west coast records were all cut at those rooms you know and you just walk in those rooms you just feel that energy so i do love that you know and i that room it's actually a lot bigger than mine though so (laughs) i walked in i'm like i could do a lot with all this space
0: (laughs) but it's just amazing to think about all of them in there together
1: a lot recording of them yeah together
0: like from a from a recording standpoint from an engineering the engineering point of view the bleed i mean to, to try to control some of that which couldn't control all of it but the fact that they were all standing in really close proximity to each other and then how that got recorded always like is amazing to me um it's
1: because you don't have to fix anything yeah it is you know, what it if, is. if you don't have to fix anything you can do that and you can have the bleed because the bleed becomes part of the sound and I actually love the sound of bleed. Like when you listen to old, you know, chess records and those old blues records, they're all done in that room and everybody's playing. And it's just that whole bleed is part of the sound. And, and if I could record more like that, I would. If I knew that bands had their stuff worked out enough to where you can just go in there and be like, this is the take. We'll do a couple takes, but we're not going to replace anything, you know? <laughs> no overdubs. Well, you can overdub, but you can't Fix. fix. I'm
0: Ann DeLisi. I'm Rob Reinhart. And we're about to bring back the perfect opportunity to honor your favorite pet and support WDET.
1: During our spring fundraiser, Ann and I will combine our shows so you can honor your dog. Or your cat. Or your dog. And WDET with a gift
0: of support. We're looking forward to hearing about your pets, no matter what kind of cat that is.
1: Cats and dogs and any other pet you may have will be part of our fundraiser.
0: And if you can't wait till the weekend, make your gift now at WDET.org slash give. Or call
1: 800-959-9333.
0: Fix it. Here's part two and the conclusion of my conversation with Al Sutton, in which we get a little nerdy talking about studios, direct boxes, and his company, Acme Audio Manufacturing. So let's get a little nerdy here and, and talk about gear, which is really a big part of your world. I mean that it people is, may yeah. not realize that people I think a lot of people know you as as a producer and a, and a recording engineer, but people that know me <laughs> they do know you, but I think that um, the the part of your world that it, 's a big part of your world um, deals with gear that supports people while they 're making mm-hmm. their music and trying to make that better or recreate certain sounds and part of what you 've done is work to create that Motown sound so that's available to other people. Is that a good way to say it?
1: Some of the products that Acme Audio makes is like some Motown products, you know. And um
0: What but what got you to want to do that specifically? Here's what, I'll tell you exactly
1: when it started. It started in 2010 when I did that Dennis Coffee record that he did that was on like that German label mm-hmm. and um And he came in and he had this DI box he said he's had forever that Ed Wolfram made him, you know, and it was like this little Motown DI thing or whatever they called it. They called it the Wolf Box, actually. And I'm like, really? You know, a DI? He's like, yeah, we never used amps at Motown. It was mostly direct, you know, and they had this other input box that Mike McLean a designer, that's that blue thing right there. That's a recreation of that. So mm-hmm. for radio listeners. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and we but, should say that a direct a direct box means that you don't have to mic an amplifier yeah, you, that you can go directly you into, plug into plug right in.
1: Your line instrument into it and then it steps it up to a level that a microphone preamp can mm-hmm. talk to better. It's a, it know? was a game changer at Motown. Well for them, yeah. And, and the thing is like that whole thing, like like the really passive DI boxes came around really early and there's there's a lot of um evidence to give ed Wolfram credit for inventing a direct input box in the late 50s and there was a lot of people that were trying to do stuff like that with transformers off speakers and ed kind of put this together and he made these boxes and then like in 66 mike McLean, who was the chief engineer of motown and he's actually a mentor of mine he's a great guy he was a guy who built and designed he actually didn't really build he designed and tested everything and then you know the crew of guys would build it. they had a whole staff there that engineered and manufactured even the tape decks they even made their own tape machines yeah, which, Motown. yeah like which is amazing because there's so much work to go into a tape deck to build and design a, like a recording circuit but um barry garty came to and was like we got to get this bleed thing better under control you know and so i need you to come up with something to do that and that became that that world famous input box that still sits at the studio right now by the stairs going up. It's Mm -hmm. like five meters on it and a little speaker below it and some five knobs and it's a five channel input box. And it was just basically a, a tube direct with a built in mic preamplifier. And it was, so it's instrumental line, you know, and you just plug in and it's like your tube direct box and your mic pre is all internally set all the levels. And it just, it was part of their assembly line process. So You didn't have to do anything. You just plugged into it and it was all set to go to the tape deck so they can have five guys playing at one time. They did all that. Their microphone preamps were all like underneath in the basement. All the gains were set for the specific microphone and they never unhooked it. So they had that assembly line running and it's like, it's brilliant ingenuity and it, it it worked and. And it fixed the bleed problem. It did. And it sounded great. You go back and listen to those guitar tones and you go, man, those are direct. I could never tell. They sound so big and. So that was like the latest product we did with Acme. We did the little passive DI box originally after I met Dennis Coffey and I had to figure out that what is this box? And then he introduced me to Wolfram and he turned me on to what the the technology was inside of it, which was very simple. And from there, it just kind of spiraled out of control. And I'm like, (laughs) I like this. I could just make things that I like. And then I... Did a compressor, limiter, and then some other things. I'm just, like, still going at it, you know?
0: So was this DI, this direct box that you um, re-engineered and basically started Built, to manufacture, yeah. build and manufacture, when people started buying it, why did they want to own it? Because of the – it, it no, was like – why what was it
1: for the, this, bo- the
0: consumer that made it? This is not an
1: arrogant statement because I didn't design it. It's like it's not – because it's because it sounds better than anything ever made for a direct box and and honestly like in my career like that would have been 20 almost maybe 20 years in making records at that point like recording bass was always the hardest problem i would always you know i've tried all these direct boxes need to have an amplifier and a di and it just never worked and then Dennis let me borrow that direct box and I plug bass in. I started recording some stuff and I'm just like, what is going on here? This is like the greatest sounding. I don't have an amp. This thing sounds so good, you know, like I'm bass. So, you know, because I, I built myself a few of them, just mm-hmm. threw some together. and
0: So based on Dennis's direct box.
1: Yeah. And then I met Wolf. He, I, he introduced me to Wolfram and he came over and he just basically gave me the And Here's what I did. And I used this transformer and it was all about that transformer, you know, this old venue. So I bought some of them off eBay and wired some up i'm like these are insane we got to make these because these sound better than any di i've never been able to get my bass tone right my whole career and then in 2010 i i hear this one little box <laughs> changes the way i record bass guitar that was it so i it, it took a lot of work to get it done because those transformers weren't made anymore and i went through a bunch of different manufacturers and finally i just was at a trade show and i was looking at some gear and i noticed that the company that was um reissuing these old Poltec equalizers like they should be able to make them and they it's their product you know it's just and they started doing it and they work you know they sound the same they're excellent and were you surprised people started buying them at the rate
0: that they started buying them
1: I don't know I I was more delighted I I mean I think that if people are nerdy like me you know and they care about tones once they try them they kind of go wow this is really good and
0: did you make a special one for Jack White with a special color
1: not that one.
0: Not
1: that I, the the compressor here, these green things. Yeah. Jack ordered, he had one of those in his red color. So, and he was working with Vance Paul, was a good friend of mine down in Nashville. Vance was doing those rock and tour records, and mm-hmm. Vance loves all the Acme products, and he's a big champion of it, and he loves that compressor. So then Jack wanted one, but I had to do it in red. So just red with just white red. letters. <laughs> it's a specific red too. They give you the formula and everything. There's a specific, it has to be a certain red, and so and good. um.
0: That's got to be a pretty, like, how does it feel to know that musicians literally all over the world are making music using something that you, I mean, it feels good.
1: You know, I, I, the idea of making gear to me is like, it goes, I think it's also ingrained in the whole growing up in Michigan, you know, tool and die, father, you know, carpentry, grandfathers and uncle, you know, people that just made things, you know, and. Blue collar, and it's the idea of you know, like a lot of this equipment in this room here is old and it's been around since the 50s. And you want to, you know, my whole thought process I want to build stuff also that just lasts. I just don't want to make a trend, you know, I want to make something that's going to be around forever. You know, some of these products have been around for decades and people use them, and I just want to make something that's going to stand up to the test of time in the sense that it's built to the highest quality you know and that whole thing and and it's just it's manufacturing in Detroit you know that's part of it you know it's like you can't take that blue collar out of you know somebody that grew up <laughs> in a blue collar family in Michigan yep. you know like you can't <laughs> do it you know like I, I mean all to my aunts DNA. and uncles are all like you know they walk in my grandfather my uncles were all carbonized, they'd walk into a you know we would go out to a restaurant maybe like running their fingers across the molding <laughs> look at this lot you know and you just the things you pick up growing up is like this attentions to detail. so you know it's just one of them things but part of the the building is for the necessity of it you know like you get to you know i got to a point where i'm like i just wish i had something that would just go a little bit more than this piece of gear you know so you start thinking about it the next thing you know you're like spending six months in front of a computer designing and handcrafting this prototype and like what do you think you <laughs> know let all your friends use it and see if it's something that's cool and
0: do you ever uh, run across a song that you worked on on the radio and does it stop you and do you listen to it?
1: Like some of the Kid Rock stuff that I recorded back in the day, you can't get away from it. You know, yeah. It's just you're kind of stuck <laughs> with that stuff coming at you. And right. it was interesting working with him on those, some of those records, you know, because it was sometimes just a carnival, you know, like it was pretty fun and wild, but also a lot of seriousness, too. But um, Kid definitely labored on what he did he just thinks about a lot of things so he he's a hands-on guy so i could say that like sometimes when i hear some of the mixes that we've done they're not my favorites because he got his hands on some things and changed them a little bit but but the song still was a hit so you know it was his idea what made it a hit was it you know like you just Mm -hmm. it's it goes back to the point of if the song is successful it's successful because people resonate with it you know and it doesn't really matter what it sounds like you know like I use that example of Smells Like Teen Spirit, you know, when you, it's not the greatest sounding drum sound and the guitar tones are just kind of over EQ'd sounding. It's not a great sounding recording, but I remember the first time I heard that and a lot of people did, you know, and, and you just kind of hear that vocal and you're just like, what, what, wait, what, what is, what's going on here? You know, that's what pulled you in. It's that emotion in his voice and it's not anything to do with the recording at all. You know, I mean, obviously the feel of it, but not how good the snare sounded or how punchy the kick was or, you know, and those things, they're important to the feel, you know, but they're not the feel, you know, they add to it.
0: Who are your heroes when it comes to recording engineers or producers? Hmm. Who
1: are the people that you, you think, wow, the way they worked? There's a lot of them, you know, like all the predecessors, you know, they're, you know, like your Glenn Johns and all the guys who did all that classic rock Ken Scott, you know, he did all that early Bowie stuff and I'll go read those biographies and it's just like, oh man, and it's, you know, that early, I think the people working in that late 60s early 70s in London and England and stuff, there was just so many great bands and you just could be a staff engineer and it's like you're recording David Bowie or, you know, Led Zeppelin or somebody because they're just coming in cuz every cuz tomorrow the Rolling Stones are coming in, you know, it's just like that sort of thing. But some of those guys did some really great stuff with very limited equipment, and it's—I think—the production side of it, I really admire. On that, you know, some of that stuff sounds phenomenal. Some of it, maybe it doesn't, but it—the song is so good, and it—you know—and at my age, you've heard it so many times that there's no way you can even hate it. But I do love like all those overly nerdy sort of productions too, like the Steely Dan stuff, where you know they just labored and labored, and that fidelity is just. You know, the stuff that people tune their hi-fives to, you know, when you listen to those records. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, like Thriller, like the production and the engineering on that. And, like, when you read the stories about how much work had to go in that just to get that cut to vinyl. I don't know if you ever read those stories. Like, Didn't they,
0: wasn't it too long or something? The low
1: end was thick. So they had to, you know, when you cut vinyl, if it's too bassy, Mm -hmm. it makes the groove bigger so you can't fit as many grooves on. And they took all the bass out of it. And Michael Jackson actually literally started crying And then Bruce Swedeen was like, I can make this work. And he went through and he just chopped enough out of it, like each song, just to make it a little shorter here and there to bring it into the point where it would fit on two sides of a a record and still maintain the fidelity of it. See, that's real engineering right there. You know, when you really have to track and mix to vinyl, that's a lot of work because it's people don't realize what you're. You know, your your frequency response constraints are way different than when you use Pro Tools and you're doing everything digital. You have no constraints. You can do anything you want. So. It really tests you. Well, you just have to learn. You know, like <laughs> that. Until you hear your first piece of record. Like, I remember the first thing I ever recorded and I heard it on the radio. And I just sat there with my hands over my face, like, oh, what have I done? You know, like, that is yeah. horrible. Like, so <laughs> shocked. It was, like, some local show back in, the, like, the, like, the early 90s, and I did some recording for some band, and they got it pressed to a 7-inch, and the local show played it on their, like, one-hour Sunday night spot. And I'm like, yeah, I can't wait to hear it. It's like the song kicks in, and the radio limiter grabs it because, like, the mm-hmm. dynamics were so out of control. And the whole mix just disappears, and I'm just sitting there going, Oh wow! What did I do? like? No idea that that even mattered, you know. That must have been a big learning experience, I would think. It was awful. It was like a horrible <laughs> experience. It's like watching your cat get run over by a car or something, you know. Oh my I'm just gosh! Like, Crap! What have I done? And you know, the thing is, it was a learning lesson too because I never even listened to the test pressing.
0: Oh, the band never right.
1: played it for me, you know. I just I did the record it. and they went and got it pressed. I never even got to hear it. And then it goes on the radio.
0: Who do you wish you could have recorded? Hmm. Who do you who do you think you would have loved to have sat on the other side of the glass from and made a record with? Could be anybody.
1: There's a lot of people. I think, um, I mean, I would love to have been like even a tape operator on any Motown session. It would have been great to work. In like Olympic or Island Studios back in the 70s, early 70s, late 60s, any of those studios, you know.
0: Is it because of those studios or who was in there? Those
1: studios and who was in there, just the the talent pool. I mean, I'd love to make a record with P.J. Harvey, you know, Mm -hmm. that would be awesome. I think that would be phenomenal to work with her. I think she needs me to work on a record with her, actually.
0: Better get on that. (laughs) She does. What's it like when you have to tell somebody what they're doing isn't good? And how does that go? I used to have a big
1: problem with that when I was starting out. Like, oh, now I I have a reputation of being an asshole because I just tell it. Like, like people get mad at me. Like, he's such an asshole. Um, but I'm just kind of like, eh, you know, it's not good. And people are like, what? Well, what do you mean? You know, I'm like, let's well, just not. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It's just we could try a million different things. But I think that idea isn't the best idea, you know. And I just think I'm just old and crabby now and I don't beat around the bush anymore because it's just wasting time you know trying to placate somebody's soft emotions you know and maybe I need to be a little more sensitive with some <laughs> artists sometimes but um,
0: well, have most you of had... the time
1: you have a rapport with them to where it's like you know you can tell them it's kind of a joking around not like right so blunt to a stranger but you're kind of like you know you've done some pre-production you've worked with them and that you've getting comfortable and you're just kind of like no dude that's wrong you know I think I mean
0: ultimately are they grateful to you
1: Absolutely, you know, and, and you know what? And I tell every artist that I go, "This is what I think," and if you don't like it, I respect that. And ultimately, it's your music, and you make the final decision on it. I'm you brought me in to give you some guidance, but it doesn't mean you have to do what I say. And that's you know, I don't force anybody to do what I tell them to do. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not gonna play your parts for you. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna. You know, I want to make you do it, and I want to tell you when I feel that you. Achieve something, and if you feel you can do better and you want to do it, I'm not going to stop you from doing that, even if it means sitting here for a day working on a guitar part or something. I've done that because ultimately, you know, they got to walk away feeling good about it. I mean, there might be a point of diminishing returns where you just got to say, okay, let's step away and come back tomorrow for that, you know, and usually that helps clear the, the head a little bit.
0: What is your best advice for? an artist or a group going into the studio to record their music, maybe for the first time, what would you say to them to prepare them mentally and emotionally, I guess, to go in and start recording hmm. their music for the world. Basically you're, you're thinking about the, for the world to hear it. What would you say to them?
1: Um, it's, I, that's a, I would say a lot of things. Um, like one thing I always try to artists to do, and is not even though I don't do it much anymore. is like just for the hell of it, when you're practicing, put up a click track and see how you guys do with it you know because when i used to play in bands i never did that and then one day we we're like let's just before we go into the studio practice for like a couple days with a metronome and see what we're doing and we're just like holy crap we are really pushing and pulling all over here and and it even though when we did record those songs we didn't use a metronome but it really helped us like focus in and some of the habits that might not have been so good like sliding through parts does
0: it get does it get the musicians to listen to each other better
1: well i think it puts everybody on the same page you know and i've used metronomes with bands where they were playing really good together but i'll throw up a metronome and then they get so much tighter Mm. together because it's kind of like now this is in charge and not this guy versus this guy you know it's like this is the boss here so it ain't this guy or that guy now. And, and you know, that's not always right for everybody. You know, like Keith Richards is the metronome. You play to him. There's The drummer doesn't, you know, set the time. It's Keith Richards, and he moves wherever he goes. And that's just the way it is. And like I said earlier, and I got tired of Pro Tools music where it doesn't speed up on the last chorus a little bit, a few beats per minute. And I just think that that's what makes music so natural. And I kind of learned that from rick rubin inadvertently when he was producing that kid rock record back in the day i was working on the tracks back in detroit and no click tracks and tempo shifts and i'm like this is cool i mean this is he's doing like recordings like people did recordings back in the day he's not playing the pro tools game you know not saying that it's a genius thing but he's a pretty genius producer you know i have a lot of respect for him and like just listening to his recordings, like actually having the tracks and working on them and feeling these tracks speed up a little bit and talking to the musicians that played on it, you know, and like, hey, he, he doesn't care. He just wants that energy. He wants it to feel natural, you know? And so that started just kind of getting me away from that mode. It's just about doing good work. That's, that's the main thing I say do great work to everybody. You know, just do great work. You know, don't half ass anything. Try to do great work all the time.